الجزيرة بودكاست The dust is settling on China's latest party congress. The Communist Party of China holds the gathering every five years, and it's the political event to watch. With it comes new reports from party leadership, like President Xi Jinping, that observers scour for details, hoping for clues about where China might be headed over the next few years. And for some, hope is narrowing. I think what was interesting from the Party Congress was how much of it was not really so surprising. In a sense, was oh, this is a trajectory that's a long time in the works, even though it is an extremely、uh, grim prospect. So, what could those prospects mean, both for people in China and people outside, worried about potential conflict? I'm Halima Hiedin, and this is the Take. Yang Yangcheng moved to the U.S. from China back in 2009 to get her PhD in physics, and she worked in the field until fairly recently. And then, about two years ago, in the middle of the pandemic, I made an unconventional career switch. I'm now a research scholar in law and fellow at Yale Law School's Paul Tsai China Center, where my research focuses on the development of science and technology in China and U.S.-China relations. It might sound like a big change, but Yang Yang says it felt natural. I was born and raised in China, and when I was growing up, I was told that basically politics and death are the two biggest taboos. Had I grown up in a free country, quote unquote, I might have chosen a very different career path. But science, she says, offered her more opportunity without compromise. So she studied physics and rose in her field, even working on projects like the Large Hadron Collider, where physicists from around the world come together to study matter at its most basic form. And then, around 2016, there were. A lot of geopolitical earthquakes that was happening,、uh, I guess, on both sides of the Atlantic. China's Communist Party has sharply expanded President Xi Jinping's political power, anointing him as the country's core leader. Donald Trump wins the presidency of the United States. And I felt that even though I still do love my physics work, the work that is related to policy has more urgency. Let's turn to politics then, and almost your new field, if you like. The recent Party Congress that has just wrapped up in China has been quite remarkable, hasn't it? There's been some indications that Xi Jinping's hold on power is solidifying. Was there anything that you noticed that might indicate that? I think what was more interesting in terms of Xi Jinping's consolidation of power was seen not so much in what was said in the Party Congress reports, but in terms of who were quote unquote elected or selected into the Politburo, in particular the Standing Committee. The Politburo is one of China's most important decision-making bodies. It has 25 members, and the most important seven of those members make up the Standing Committee. Which is led by C. The way it's being stacked with his loyalists, in a almost like absolute faction, and one particular personnel choice that 
struck me was Li Chang, the second in line, who's most likely going to be premier next year. Before this month, Li Chang was known for being the party secretary in Shanghai. And earlier this year, under his tenure, Shanghai was known to have one of the most restrictive COVID lockdowns. People in Shanghai are losing their patience with the city's strict coronavirus lockdown. People are being confined to their compounds, their houses, their apartments. You get the occasional delivery here, but that is about it. One might have thought that this might be a tarnish on an official's career, but apparently he's being promoted for it. And I think that implication probably means that the building of state capacity, these surveillance and control infrastructure in the name of COVID-19 prevention are going to be the daily reality of Chinese life for a very long time to come. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because if you're not familiar with the way the Chinese political system works, it can be quite infuriating watching from the outside. It's so choreographed, it's so opaque. And you've just laid out there quite clearly that having one person moving into a particular job, that gives a real insight into what could lie ahead for China's political governance. I think that is an interesting point. And I think on one hand, looking at these small developments in terms of personnel and in terms of like, say, the Party Congress report, what is probably more interesting than the report itself is the changes in these specific phrases, how many times they're mentioned, certain phrases appearing or disappearing. These shifts are probably are, are more informative than uh, just a singular text itself. And we'll get to those shifts in a minute. But first, there's a moment that Yang Yang noticed, along with a lot of other people watching the Congress. Questions are still swirling about an incident involving former President Hu Jintao. Oh, he was escorted out of the main auditorium in the Great Hall of the People on Saturday. Was who ill or defiant? Was he purged? Pick your theory, we'll probably never know. Hu Jintao was president of China from 2003 until 2013. And there's been a lot of speculation as to why he was removed from the hall. State media later said he was suffering a health episode. And Yang Yang says she doesn't have a reason to dispute that. However, I think what was probably more telling is the reactions from his colleagues while he was being escorted out of the venue. No one turned around to look at him. Here's Yang Yang's interpretation of what happened. This is a climate of fear and paranoia. So no one could turn around to look at a former leader because they do not know how their reaction might be interpreted as a sign of political allegiance or personal loyalty. Because as a former party leader, I mean, that's a role that traditionally carries an enormous amount of respect, isn't it? Yes, but also just even if he was not in the top leadership, even he was just an ordinary delegate, there is still some kind of <laughs> reaction. And so I felt uh, that level of, of rigidity, that level of orchestration, that the show must go on. And that is by itself a demonstration of power. Let's talk about some of the things that C actually laid out in his reports. He mentioned security more than the economy, and that seems to be a first. What do you think's behind that change? 
I think security was mentioned about ninety times. Economy was mentioned about sixty times. However, I should also note that the word development, 发展 was mentioned over two hundred times. So I wouldn't necessarily see this as a shift away from economic development or the economy in general. But I think what this indicates is what kind of development. For example, if we look at the Chinese government's policies in Xinjiang with the Brutal crackdowns and surveillance and mass internment policies that the UN examined earlier this year. Michelle Bachelet's long-awaited report is a damning indictment of China's treatment of the Uyghur population. It found that Uyghurs and other mostly Muslim groups held in detention camps have been subjected to torture. A lot of that is done in the name of security and counterterrorism, but a lot of that is also done in the name of development. China has condemned the report. It says its policies in Xinjiang fight what it calls terrorism and provide Uyghurs with better economic opportunities. So when we see this emphasis on security and the emphasis on development in the latest party report, I think the questions we need to ask is what kind of development, what motivates it, and whose interests it serves. And so, what kind of development do you think that 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 he is pursuing then, and and whose interests is he hoping to serve? I think it is a little bit too early to tell, but in general, I think that any kind of policy from Beijing and from the Chinese leadership is first of all to serve the interests of the party in the sense of solidifying party control. Everything else comes secondary to that. It's hard to tell what people across China might think about these reports, but we did get some form of dissent. Ahead of the meeting, in the form of a single protest on a bridge, can you tell me about what happened? I remember that moment very, very clearly when I saw the videos. And initially, I didn't quite understand what was going on, and then there was some discussions of just where this bridge. Was and I think it was confirmed both by the geolocation, but also because of Chinese censorship that the name of the bridge and the surrounding neighborhood was quickly being censored on Chinese social media. We now know the location to be Sutong Bridge, which sits over a busy Beijing highway. And then the message itself is absolutely remarkable. The banner on said in this kind of fashion. 不要要 so it says no to confinement. We want freedom. No to continuous PCR tests. We want to be able to eat. No to the dictator. We want to vote. In these really succinct but also really catchy phrasing, and then there is another side to the banner that basically said remove Xi Jinping, the dictator, from office. Protests happen often in China, Yang Yang says. But they're usually more directed at an individual grievance, say a labor issue or a real estate dispute. But this message on Sutong Bridge was directed directly at the top leadership and at Xi Jinping himself. That boldness and that directness, I do think, it is a moment that will be remembered in Chinese protest history. The bridge protesters' act of defiance has already inspired others to speak out too. So we see that these reverberations across China, with other people scrawling a message on the door in a public restroom, which is probably the only public space in China that's outside the ubiquitous surveillance by the Chinese state. There have already been comparisons with the famous Tank Man, 
who obstructed Chinese security forces in Tiananmen Square back in the 1980s. But Yang Yang says she's reminded of another Chinese dissident, Lin Zhao, who was imprisoned and eventually executed under Mao Zedong. And during her imprisonment, she also at times used her own blood to write these letters and these poems denouncing Mao and denouncing the party's policies. And that act, one would think, is just suicidal. But because uh, Lin Zhao, with her irrepressible spirit of dissent, she left a mark. It was not that the entire country had gone into madness or silence. There was at least one voice. And so future generations can look back and find these little markers of hope. After the break, a look at how politicians in the U.S., are using China as a political tool of their own ahead of the country's midterm elections. Hey guys, Sami Zaydan here from Essential Middle East Podcast. You don't want to miss our next show. It's really fascinating. We're going to be talking about the trade in illicit artifacts. I'll be talking to the Dean of Academic Affairs at Georgetown. She's also UNESCO's Chief Advisor for Heritage Management and Sustainable Development. Check it out. I've been speaking with Yale policy scholar and physicist Yang Yangcheng about China's latest party congress. We also heard from others about what the meeting may have signaled. I think we do have to remember that politics dominates in China and national security is going to be a growing concern, which is why there's so much more focus on security than economy. That's Isaac Stonefish. He's a former journalist and the founder of the firm Strategy Risks. We asked him about how the US has been reacting to China, and there's one risk in particular he mentioned. Policy towards China is playing quite a large role in the US midterms because there's a lot of worries in the United States, both about the Communist Party's influence in America, but also the question over Taiwan. Both sides are perilously close to a war if China decides to invade Taiwan, which it's been very clear that it's willing to do, the U.S. very well might get involved in that war. And that could be a regional war. It could also very possibly be World War III. So it's a major policy concern. It's a major global issue. And it's something that doesn't get nearly enough attention. The potential for war might not be getting that attention. But US politicians have emphasized their concern over a potential Chinese incursion to Taiwan for some time. US House Speaker Nancy Pelosi made the trip to Taiwan herself back in August. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi arrived in Taipei just before 11 p.m. local time. Pelosi's late-night landing was quickly followed by news of Chinese military drills all around the island. And it's not the only part of U.S.-China relations making it into the debate as the United States gears up for midterm elections. This concerns over spying. Breaking news out of the Justice Department, Attorney General Merrick Garland has just announced arrests over alleged espionage involving the Chinese government. And a rising trade war. Washington has imposed sweeping controls on exports of semiconductors, also known as microchips, to Beijing. 
Some candidates, like Democrat Tim Ryan, who's running to represent Ohio in the U.S. Senate, are even running campaigns around China with ads like this. China. It's definitely China. One word, China. Here's Yang Yang again. I think this is probably one of the most interesting developments coming from this midterm, when we would usually think foreign policy is something that only affects presidential campaigns at top level. But how much of these local state races, including not just congressional races, but governor's races like the one in Georgia, where China is being discussed so much, and not just by one party, but by both Republican Democratic candidates. Take that example in Georgia where Democratic candidate Stacey Abrams went after her Republican counterpart, Brian Kemp, for his policies that encouraged Chinese investment in the state's farmland. Republicans and Democrats have raised the alarm over the rise in the Chinese Communist Party-backed companies purchasing American farmland. To date, they've purchased more than one million acres of farmland in the state of Georgia. That is a fascinating development, but it's also deeply worrisome. I think it is a sign of very unpleasant times to come. And it's already hard for a lot of Chinese people working in the US right now, especially scientists. Part of this stems from a fear of surveillance. Former US President Donald Trump launched something called the China Initiative back in 2018 to prosecute what he considered to be Chinese spies in US research industries. And while current President Joe Biden ended the program earlier this year, after outcry over concerns of racial profiling, the stigma is still there. It is really, really difficult to be an overseas Chinese student these days when you're still new to a country, still pursuing a degree, studying, navigating a new environment, seeing the worrying developments in your birth country, but also seeing the rising hostilities here in the U.S. where Chinese students are either being seen as just cash machines for tuition income for their schools or being accused of being potential agents of the Chinese state or carriers of the COVID-19 virus. That's a very difficult position to be in, especially for a young student. Over the past decade, we've seen a variety of types of China policy from the US government, and a lot of it focuses on science. Why do you think that is? I think this is actually in line with why China is being a new focus in a lot of these local and state races, when a lot of these blames are being placed on Chinese investments in the U.S., manufacturing jobs moving to China. And so a lot of these problems that are being directed at China are actually not problems with regards to China or the authoritarian political system of the Chinese state per se. These are problems of capitalism. Yang Yang says the issue here isn't China versus US, democracy versus autocracy, or any of the other binaries that get floated around. It's more about money and capital. Who has it, who doesn't, and where it's moving. The Chinese economy over the past four decades transitioned to embrace the capitalist market. 
and this is why manufacturing jobs moved to China and such, right? Because it was in the periphery, and it's where Western interests, U.S. interests, can continue to extract profit from. And scientists and students coming from China are very much being seen in this way. They are human capital. For a long time, the U.S. welcomed Chinese scientists, people like Yang Yang, because they were seen as a benefit to U.S. companies. But as China's profile grew on the world stage, that image started to shift. Right now, what we are seeing is China and the U.S. are battling for control over the top position in this capitalist hierarchy, and this is the fundamental underlying reason for a lot of what these geopolitical tensions and these suspicions on scientists and technologies and intellectual property theft are coming from. As someone who's lived in both countries, what do you think people should understand about the potential for a great power conflict between the U.S. and China? I think people need to understand that war is not inevitable. However, there are certain interests who may want a path to conflict as a way to solidify and accumulate power. So I think what is more important at the moment is to see why powerful interests are so aligned in this narrative of whether you call it great power competition or strategic rivalry, systemic competition, whatever. Why they are the ones who have so much power? And when it comes to challenging that power, Yang Yang is also thinking about those pockets of dissent she does see like the Sutong Bridge protester and the people he's inspired. In these difficult times, it is particularly important to hold on to these voices, to hold on to these hope, and to help expand it and let it grow. And I think that is where freedom dreams can still bloom, even if it's in a very dire situation. And that's the take. This episode was produced by Nagin Oliai, with Ruby Zaman, Chloe K. Lee, Alexandra Locke, Ashish Mahotra, Amy Walters, and me, Halamahiyuddin. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. Aya Elmalek and Adam Abugad are the Take's engagement producers. Nate Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back on Monday. <laughs>